Well, good morning. My name is Nate. If we don't know each other, I'd love to meet you at some point. Um, it is uh, great to be back, and um, I'm just uh, coming back so encouraged um, and grateful to get to be part of Highlands Community Church. Um, it, it really is remarkable to hear stories of people that um, that I've never met and that many of our team had not met um, who are... Uh, are grateful for the work that's being done here in this church because they are um, benefiting from it. And it's truly humbling to get to be uh, part of that. And so I just want to say thank you um, for your generosity that enables us to partner with uh, pastors and missionaries all over the world. It really is incredible. Um, And I'm also, uh, whenever I'm gone, I'm always... uh, super grateful for uh, the team that we have um, and the amazing work that uh, is not contingent upon um, any one person. And so thank you for uh, helping us build that kind of community. Uh, Today we are continuing um, our series, Walking Through the Book of Acts. And Acts is the history document of the early church. It tells the story of how the message of Jesus and his death and resurrection went from this obscure group of Jewish people in Jerusalem to being something that had spread throughout the entire Roman Empire. How did that happen? That's what the book of Acts is about. And the point of the book is that God is on a mission in the world to send people and to save people. He is sending people by the power of his spirit to be witnesses to Jesus and The point of sending people is that people might be saved. Today, we're picking up where we left off last week. And the question that I want to talk about today is what does a faithful Christian witness look like under pressure? What does a faithful Christian witness look like under pressure? And by pressure, I mean when it's not welcomed or popular to be carrying the name of Jesus, in that setting, what does a faithful Christian witness look like? And the reason that that question I think matters is because if you're a Christian in the room, maybe you feel that. You can tell that the the seasons have changed culturally and Being a follower of Jesus comes with more pressure maybe than it used to. How are we to respond to that as Christians? And then if if you're here and you're not a Christian, you can also benefit, I think, from our answer to this question because maybe as we talk about, you know, uh, partners around the world and wanting to see more Christians around the world or more Christians in our community, Maybe that feels almost like imperialistic to you. Like, okay, so Christians are still just trying to impose their values and their beliefs on other people. We're still doing that. And, and maybe that feels hard for you. And yet you're friends with someone who's a Christian. That's why you're here. Or maybe you're, you're still interested in the claims of, of Jesus. But, but these, this, need to to witness, to push your agenda on others. Maybe that's something that's still keeping you from really embracing Jesus and his teaching. And so I think that our answer to this question, 
What does a faithful Christian witness look like under pressure? I think that this question is also important for you to hear as well. So what we're going to do today is um, we're going to walk through Acts chapter 4 together. Um, and then we're going to look at two uh, pairs of things that we need to hold together if we're going to be faithful Christian witnesses under pressure. So um, Acts chapter 4, if you have a Bible, is where we'll be today. Um, and there's a Bible provided there in the seat for you. I think uh, it's on page 969 in that particular Bible, I think. Um, so picking up where we left off last week, let's catch up to what's happened. Um, Peter and John were going to the temple to pray. And while they were going, they saw a man who was begging there. He was a lame man who couldn't walk and they healed him. And all of a sudden he could walk. And then they, everybody's amazed and they begin to preach the gospel and a large number of people became followers of Jesus. They started to believe in Jesus because of this event that took place. We're picking up right after that. Um, Acts chapter four, verse five. The next day, their rulers, elders, and scribes assembled in Jerusalem, verse six, with Annas, the high priest, Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and all the members of the high priestly family. So the leaders of the temple, the leaders of the Jewish state are getting together to discuss the events from yesterday. And the reason that it it matters who these people are, Annas and John and Alexander and the members of the high priestly family. The reason this matters for uh, the context is because these are the same people who convened and decided to arrest and crucify Jesus. These are the same Jewish leaders who were responsible for the death of Jesus. And here are Jesus's followers and they're going to be brought before the very ones who killed Jesus. This is not just random details. There's emotion here. If you're Peter and John, and you know that these leaders are here again, you start to feel the pressure. And so these leaders come together. And then verse seven, after they had Peter and John stand before them, they began to question them. So they call Peter and John in and here's their question. By what power or in what name have you done this? By what power or in what name have you performed this good deed to this poor disabled man? In whose name are you doing that? In verse eight. Then Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit and said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today about a good deed done to a disabled man and by what means he was healed, then I guess here's your answer, verse 10. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified and whom God raised from the dead, by him, this man is standing before you healthy. And then Peter goes on to say, this Jesus 
the one from Nazareth, the one that you crucified, you remember. The one who's been raised. This is the one that the psalmist spoke about. When the psalmist said, the the stone rejected by you builders has become the cornerstone. You as leaders of Israel, you're trying to build up the house of Israel. You're trying to build the nation of Israel, but, but the cornerstone, the foundation of this house that you're trying to build is the one that you've rejected. There is salvation found, verse 12, in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to people by which we must be saved. Why are we doing this good deed for this disabled man in the name of Jesus? Because there's no other name. There's no other name where salvation can be found. Verse 13. When they observed the boldness of Peter and John, or the word could be translated courage, When they observed the boldness of Peter and John and realized that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and recognized that they had been with Jesus. Now, do you notice why they're amazed? Because these are the leaders. They have the authority to execute. They're allowed under Roman rule to govern according to their own laws. And they're used to people then being intimidated by them. They're used to people saying what they think the leaders want to hear. But Peter and John know that they don't want to hear about the name of Jesus. That's why they're being questioned. And yet they're still naming him. They can't get the name of Jesus out of their mouth. And they're surprised by that. They're surprised that such boldness would come in their presence. And not only is this, these two men, not only are they being bold, but they're being bold even though they're uneducated and untrained. Or could be translated, they're just common men. Here they stand in our presence We're the most educated about the Old Testament scriptures. You're going to quote Psalm 118 to me? They're the most educated. But here these uneducated people are standing without fear. It's surprising to them. And verse 14, And since they saw the man who had been healed standing with them, They had nothing to say in opposition. They can't even argue because of the good work, the good deed that they've performed. What are they going to say? Later, it's going to tell us in verse 23, for this sign of healing had been performed on a man over 40 years old. It's like, everybody knows this guy couldn't walk. We've got 40 years of testimony that he can't walk. And yet now he can walk. We can't even argue with that. And so the Jewish leaders have a dilemma. They're stuck. The dilemma is, verse 15, after they ordered them to leave the Sanhedrin, they conferred among themselves saying, okay, what are we going to do with these guys? Verse 16, what are we going to do with these guys? 
For an obvious sign has been done through them, clear to everyone living in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. We can't say anything because we see it. Verse 17. But so this does not spread any further among the people. Let's threaten them against speaking to anyone in this name again. See, here's their dilemma. We can't argue against this good work they've done. We can't be the Jewish leaders who come down and say, it was actually bad that this guy can walk now. We're not going to be able to do that. But we also don't want the name of Jesus to spread. So what if we tell them to just keep doing the good works? Because we can all agree that that's important. But just drop the name Jesus from the good works. Verse 18. So they called for them and ordered them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Verse 19. Peter and John answered them. Whether it's right in the sight of God for us to listen to you rather than to God, you decide. For we are unable to stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. After threatening them further, they released them. They found no way to punish them because the people were all giving glory to God over what had been done. For the man was 40 years old. And so Peter and John are released. They'll be back in their presence soon, but for now they're released. And then verse 23, after they were released, they went to their own people and reported everything the chief priests and the elders had said to them. Do you feel the emotion of verse 23? These are the same people who crucified Jesus that have just warned them. They have just threatened them. Do not keep speaking the name of Jesus. Are we clear on that? And even after they said, look, you're going to have to decide what the right thing for us to do is, but we cannot stop speaking. After they say that, then they threatened them further. Peter and John didn't get to have the last word. So they walk out and do you feel the, the fear that they would have? Do you, do you feel the anxiety? Think about Peter's wife. Think about his kids, his family members. Think about the people in the room. Think about the people who trade with Peter, who work with Peter. Here they are, and it's easy to look back now and be like, oh, man, look at how bold they were. That's not how it felt at the time. And so they go back and they, they begin to announce to the church, this is what they said. What are we going to do? And what's their next move? They started reading apologetic books about how to convince Jewish leaders the truthfulness of the claims of Jesus. That's not what they did. They started taking evangelism courses. 
They had a pep talk. What they began to do, verse 24, when they heard this, they raised their voices together to God and said, they began to pray, Master, you are the one who made the heaven, the earth, and the sea, and everything in them. These Jewish leaders exist under your authority. You said through the Holy Spirit by the mouth of our father David, your servant, Psalm 2, why do the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers assemble together against the Lord and against his Messiah. For in fact, in this city, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel assembled together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed to do whatever your hand and your will had predestined to take place. What are they doing? They're praying to God and initially what they're doing in their prayer is they are humbling themselves underneath the sovereignty of God. They're recognizing God's authority over all things. God has authority over the leaders who are threatening us. And God in his scripture prophesied that the rulers of the earth the kings of the earth would come together and conspire against the Messiah, Jesus. So they're, they're recognizing God, nothing is happening that is not outside of your control. Nothing is happening outside of your control. Nothing is happening that's not under your authority. And now, Lord, verse 29. And now, Lord, consider their threats. We know that you're in control. We know that you have power, but, but God, consider their, their threats. And grant that your servants may be safe from all of their attacks. That's what they said. And grant that your servants may speak your word with all boldness. Why are they praying that? Why do they have to ask God to help them speak the word with boldness? Because it is not in them to be bold in this moment. It's not in them to be bold in this moment. It's in them to be afraid. It's in them to be anxious. It's in them to want to quit. It's in them to want to be silent. But they ask for boldness. And they don't only pray for boldness, they also pray for more good works to be done. Look at verse 30. Help us to keep speaking while you stretch out your hand for healing and signs and wonders that are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Keep doing more of the stuff that happened in Acts 3, is what they're asking. Verse 31, And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God boldly. So, 
what can we learn about a faithful Christian witness under pressure? There are two pairs of things that we have to keep together. The first pair is good works and good news. Good works and good news. There's a tendency to want to separate them and prioritize one over the other. A faithful Christian witness keeps them together. Um, Look in the text, verse seven. They're originally there because of this good work that's been done. That's awesome. The event that begins this whole thing was a good work and then it leads to announcing good news. In verses 18 through 20, the leaders can't argue with the good work, but they don't want to announce the news. Peter says it can't work that way. We can't keep doing the good works without the good news. But similarly, their prayer at the end in verse 30, 29 and 30, shows us that it it can't work the other way either though. We don't want to just be bold proclaimers. We also, God, we want for your healing to come. We want for the miracles and the wonders to keep happening. God, we want for good to be done. Now, where would they have learned this pairing of good works and good news? From Jesus. That's where they would have learned it. In Acts chapter one, do you remember this? The very first verse, I wrote the first narrative, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach. Do you remember us talking about that? Jesus came doing stuff and teaching stuff. There was good works and there was good news in the ministry of Jesus. He was doing good works like healings and miracles and driving out demons, similar to what the apostles are going to do. He was bringing God's kingdom back to people through these good works. And he came announcing good news. He was teaching. And on the cross, Jesus embodied what he taught. What Jesus taught was love your enemies. Be generous with your resources. Guard against greed. Don't fear If you want to be great, become a servant. Be hospitable to people that the world has overlooked. Repent of your sins. Seek forgiveness. These are the things that Jesus taught. Those are just moral commands, but they become news at the cross. At the cross, Jesus embodied what he taught. So that at the cross, now we know what love for enemies actually looks like. At the cross, now we know what it looks like what it looks like to be generous with your resources and to guard against greed. At the cross, we know what it looks like to live without fear. At the cross, we know what it looks like to be great and become a servant. At the cross, we know what it looks like to be hospitable to the world that, to the people in the world that have been overlooked. And at the cross, it's possible for repentance and forgiveness of sins to be announced. Jesus came working and teaching. He came with good works and his works and teaching became good news to be announced. In the New Testament, Christians are commanded to devote themselves to good works. This means living with personal integrity and loving our neighbors as ourselves. Christians are to be people who are honest 
and self-controlled. Practice self-restraint. Christians are to be people who love our neighbors, who care for widows and orphans, who bless those who don't bless us, who are generous towards those who can't pay us back, who are hospitable to strangers, to people who are not like us. Let me ask you some questions. If you claim to follow Jesus, are you known for good works? If you claim to follow Jesus, are you known for good works? What would your family say? What would your extended family say? What would the people who work with you say? What would people who follow you on social media say? If you claim to follow Jesus, are you known for good works? Here's another question. How is your love for people who are different than you? How is your love for people who are different than you? Would people of the opposite political party feel loved by you? Followers of Jesus should be known for good works. But we cannot separate good works and good news. And this is where we bump into the same dilemma that the Jewish leaders bumped into. This is maybe how you feel, either as a Christian, because you feel intimidated about the good news part, or maybe this is how you feel as someone who's not a Christian, is this right here. The same dilemma that they had in the first century. It's, so why can't you just do the good works without the good news? Why do you have to attach the good news to it? Why do you have to start preaching? Just do good stuff for people. Why can't Christians just do good and keep their beliefs about Jesus and salvation private? This is pretty exclusive stuff. Verse 12, there is salvation in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given to people by which we must be saved. Why do you have to go to the salvation thing? Why do you have to go to the Jesus thing? Just do good works. Why can't you just keep your beliefs private? A question that could be asked in response to that is, why can't you just keep that belief private? See, see, that's a belief. That's a belief about religious truth claims. The belief is that all religions basically teach the same thing. And the point of religion is really just to create a good society. And so why do you need to bring your truth claim about Jesus and salvation and good news into public. Just keep that part private and bring the good works into public. And by asking that question, you're bringing your truth claim about religion into the public. See, the reality is that everyone is an evangelist. Everyone's an evangelist. Um, 
Mark Lilla, uh, it's a professor at Columbia University, and he tells this story about a bright young student who uh, was in his, uh, one of his courses who was converted to Christianity. And Mark Lilla describes that once he found out that this bright young man was now a Christian, he says, I wanted to cast doubt on the step he was about to take. I wanted to help him see there are other ways to live, other ways to seek knowledge, love, and even self-transformation. I wanted to convince him his dignity depended on maintaining a free, skeptical attitude towards doctrine. I wanted to save him. And what he realizes, and it's remarkable transparency for him to be able to say this, but as someone who's not a Christian, he realized that he wanted to convert Christians to his understanding of how the world should work. And then that helped him have the honesty to say, you know what, as a Christian who wants to share good news, you're not actually doing anything different than what I'm doing. You want to save me and I want to save you, but we're doing the same thing. Everyone's an evangelist. Everyone has beliefs about the world that inform how they live. Christians are no different. The question is, how does the exclusive belief about salvation in Jesus called the good news lead to love and good works? That's the question that we should be asking. How does the exclusive belief about salvation in Jesus that we call the good news, the gospel, how does that translate to love and good works? See, because on the surface, the pushback is Christians believe that the only people who can be saved are people who believe in Jesus. That is bigotry. That is discriminatory. That would have to lead to hate. If you believe that there's hell for people who don't believe in Jesus, then you can't love the world. That's a hateful thing to believe. How should we respond to that? How does this exclusive belief about salvation in Jesus called the good news lead to love and good works? Well, think about what the good news teaches for just a minute. The good news of Jesus teaches that all people are created in the image of God and that God has given common grace to all creation. That means that all people, Christians believe that all people are worthy of love and respect. There's intrinsic dignity for every single person. And as a Christian, I should expect there to be moral longings inside each person that leads them to be better than any of their mistaken beliefs might make them. So we start with the image of God in common grace. Then we move in the good news to universal sinfulness. All people fall short of God's glory. All people fall short of God's design. All people have sinned. All people have rebelled against God. That is just as true for me as it is for you. A Christian is no better morally than anyone else. A Christian is no better morally than a Muslim, a Hindu, a Buddhist, an agnostic, or an atheist. We are not better people. We are, in some cases, worse. So 
So Christians should expect to find people of other faiths who are much kinder, wiser, and better than we are. Why? Because the thing that makes me a Christian is not being moral. What makes someone a Christian? What makes someone a Christian is the message that salvation is by grace. Christianity teaches that it's not the good people, the moral people who are saved. Christianity teaches that it's the humble who are saved. It's those who acknowledge their sin and look to Jesus who are saved. God has come to us in his son, Jesus. God loved those who hated him. Jesus loved the ones who hated him. Jesus loved the stranger who was different from him. Jesus was the rejected cornerstone. And this message of grace eradicates all boasting. It eradicates all feelings of superiority. It eradicates worldly pride and arrogance. All of that dies at the cross because the message of Christianity is that on my own, I'm not okay. I need God to do something for me. And he has in his son, Jesus. And that means that I can't look at you and think, oh, you're such a despicable, oh, gross. I've got to protect my kids from oh, people like all of your, oh. But in my heart, I can't look down on you. But instead, I should see the flaws and have compassion. And that is why the good news can lead to good works. As followers of Jesus, our motivation for good works is the good news. Listen to Titus chapter two. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, instructing us to deny godlessness and worldly lusts and to live in a sensible, righteous, and godly way in the present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to cleanse for himself a people for his own possession, eager to do good works. For a Christian, we must spread good news because it's the basis for good works. Without good news, good works will never be enough. Without the good news of what Jesus has done for us, we won't be good enough to justify ourselves. If what we're working for, if the reason that we want to do good things is to make us feel better about our meaningless existence, if the reason we want to do good things is because we want to prove that we are good people, that we are worthy of respect, that we should be noticed and significant, those motivations 
cannot be fulfilled by good works. You can spend your whole life trying to do enough good works to make yourself respectable in the eyes of the world and in a moment be canceled. Good works cannot save you. Good works cannot justify your existence. You need good news. You need news that something has been done for you, outside of you. That's what you need and that's what Christianity offers. And similarly, good works will never be enough to solve the world's problems. We cannot band together well enough to fix society. They thought that was going to happen in the beginning of the 20th century because of all of the scientific revolution that had taken place, all of the technology advancement, all of the wonderful things that were happening. And then that is not what happened in the 20th century, is it? A society all coming together in utopia. We cannot do enough good works to save the world ourselves. We need Jesus and his promise of a future new heavens and new earth. And it's because of the hope that we have in Christ for the future that we actually can labor now, knowing that our labor to do good on the earth is not in vain. And so as a church, Good works and good news must stay together. As a church, we want to be a church that worships and studies God's word. And we want to be a church that rolls up our sleeves and does community service. We want to be a church that does Bible study and does good to our neighbors, mows yards, bakes cookies. We want to be a church that shares the gospel and shares our possessions. We want to be a church where good works and good news stay together. A faithful Christian witness must hold good works and good news together and we must do it with boldness and humility. And this is the second pair. A faithful Christian witness holds good works and good news together and it holds boldness and humility together. The character of their witness in Acts 4 is that they're bold, yet they're humble. This is surprising to the leaders. These are people who are bold, they have courage, and yet they have no status in society. Now think about that. Their focus, the focus of their witness was not to start at the top where the power is and then see that trickle down. Instead, this whole movement that's starting in Acts chapter three is starting why? Because two common men are going to the temple to pray. They're doing a very humble thing. And yet they're marked by courage while they go. The movement doesn't start because they converted someone in power. The movement starts because of an act of kindness to a poor man with a disability while on the way to pray. An act of kindness that no one could argue against and then a resolve to speak about the hope that's within them. This is significant for us to hear today because there is a tendency on the part of me as a pastor. And there's a tendency, I think, on the part of 
us as Christians to want respect and admiration and popularity with this world. I want to show when somebody finds out I'm a pastor that I'm, but I'm an, I'm, but I'm an enlightened pastor though. Okay. But yeah, I, I believe the Bible, but, but like, I mean, the Bible is a complex book. Okay. And there's actually a lot of smart people who believe the Bible. Okay. And I want to prove my respectability. I want to prove how I'm actually admirable on your terms. I, and, and that trickles into the church. We want to be popular with the world. And so we want to make the church pretty and professional and put together because we don't want the ridicule and rejection of this world. And here I'm not talking, I mean, we want the quality of things to be good. Like music should be good. The sermon should be like decent communication skills. Like that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the attitude that we have, the posture that we have, We don't want ridicule and rejection from this world. We want to prove that we're, we're worth accepting. You can actually love us. Being a Christian is cool, we promise. There's like this, this thing. And, and in this sense, boldness can actually resonate with us. Because there's something in us that says, when we have opportunity, we want to fight back. We want to stand up. We want to be heard. But this is not the, the boldness on display here. The boldness here is not arrogant, it's not brash, it's not chest out, mic drop moment where the opponent is left humiliated. This boldness is also humble. It's surprising. It reminds me of something that Henry Nouwen wrote. Um, There's a little book by Henry Nouwen who was a a Catholic priest and um, it's a book about Christian leadership. It's his reflections on Christian leadership. And he says... um, so his story is that he was in the academy. Um, he uh, taught at uh, Notre Dame and Yale and Harvard, and he was very respected. And, um, and then he left to work in a home for people with mental disabilities. And that experience of leaving the academy and going to work in this home was extremely disorienting for him. And he realized that people did not like him or approve of him based on anything prior to what he had done. His, um, his education, his accomplishments, his books and degrees and the networks that he had built, they meant nothing to these people. Instead, it was just him exposed for just his, his own self. And as he worked with that, he realized that the Christian leader, the Christian witness is tempted to be relevant. He says, we try to show how competent and professional and educated and enlightened we are. But what is needed, however, is not relevance, but real love. He says that Jesus' question to Peter when Jesus is determining if Peter is going to actually be able to go and lead this movement, the end of John. The same Peter who's standing up and proclaiming the gospel here. What was 
Jesus's question to Peter. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? That was the question of qualification for Peter to lead this movement. Do you love me? He says, the, qu- the question for the Christian leader is not how many people take you seriously? How much are you going to accomplish? Can you show some results? But the question is, are you in love with Jesus? Do you know the incarnate son of God? It is not enough for the Christian leaders to be moral people, well-trained, eager to help their fellow humans and able to respond creatively to burning issues of their time. All of that is valuable and important, but it is not the heart of Christian leadership. The central question is, are the leaders of the future truly men and women of God, people with an ardent desire to dwell in God's presence, to listen to God's voice, to look at God's beauty, to touch God's incarnate word, and to taste fully God's infinite goodness? Through the discipline of prayer, Christian leaders have to learn to listen again and again to the voice of love and to find there the wisdom and courage to address whatever issue presents itself to them. Dealing with burning issues without being rooted in a deep personal relationship with God easily leads to divisiveness because before we know it, our sense of self is caught up in our opinion about a given subject. But when we are securely rooted in personal intimacy with the source of life, it will be possible to remain flexible without being relativistic, convinced without being rigid, willing to confront without being offensive, gentle and forgiving without being soft, and true witnesses without being manipulative. What is he saying? He's saying boldness and humility is what we need. And boldness and humility is cultivated through prayer. Something non-flashy, something that people don't show up to, something that people think is just, oh yeah, prayer. But it's actually the discipline of just being with God that equips the kind of Christian leaders that we need for this cultural moment. This is what you see the early church practice. Prayer submits us to God's sovereignty. It warms our hearts to the priorities of Christ. It prepares us for downward mobility of the cross. Because our our model for witness is a rejected cornerstone. Bold, strong, keep the building up but humble, overlooked, rejected by the world. That's what we're called to be. Let me pray for us. Father, we praise you because you are the Lord of heaven and earth. You made the earth and the sea and everything in them. So God, help us to have a right view of ourselves. Father, I ask that your spirit would be active now 
Would you humble us where we need to be humbled? Would you convict us where we need to be convicted? And God, would you give us boldness? And would you continue to pour out your healing? It's in Jesus' name that I ask. Amen.